0: Today's Binge is brought to you by Yahoo! Fantasy Football. This NFL season, be your own GM. Be a winning GM. Turn this season into a fist
1: full of epic wins by joining a Yahoo! Fantasy Football League. Yahoo! has spent the off-season making serious upgrades to enhance your experience. So, when you play fantasy football on Yahoo!, the
0: wins are as epic as the season is long.
1: Yahoo Fantasy is also the only app where you can manage all of your season-long and daily fantasy teams in one place. Create or join a league now at yahoo.com
0: slash football.
1: Warning. Binge mode contains adult content.
0: That's right. Adult content. It's the kind of thing that we talk about here on Binge Mode. Harry Potter, as the students are turning teenaged, doing things that teenagers do, like trying to beep. So if that's not your thing, please check out
1: House of Carbs with Joe House. One more warning. Binge mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know why you should avoid regurgitating toilets in Bethnal Green, please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode.
0: "'I mean there were two Dementors down that alleyway, and they went for me and my cousin!' "'Ah!'
1: said Fudge again, smirking unpleasantly as he looked around the gamut, as though inviting them to share the joke.
0: "'Yes, yes, I thought we'd be hearing something like this.' "'Dementors? In little whinging!'
1: Madame Bones said, in a tone of great surprise.
0: "'I don't understand!' "'Don't you, Amelia?' said Fudge, still smirking. "'Let me explain. He's been thinking it through, and decided Dementors would make a very nice little cover story. Very nice indeed!' Muggers can't see Dementors, can they, boy? Highly convenient, highly convenient. So, it's just your word and no witnesses. I'm not lying.
1: Welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Oh, what a great website. Joining me today. Now that he's finished swiping immobilized doxies for his research. Research purposes only. Venom. I need it. Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. It's for snack boxes.
0: And it's for Binge Mode Harry Potter, where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe, whether you're testing the puking pastilles or the fainting fancies or nosebleed nougat, gross. Mm. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us, five points and stars for Binge Mode. Please feel free to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, aka the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans and which is an excellent place to alert the masses.
1: If Mundungus shows up, then he's stolen goods. Fucking dung. Yesterday, on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how disillusionment shapes the first five chapters of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And on today's episode, we're diving into chapters six through nine. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep. On Details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon taking the entire series into account from the moment Creature's loincloth comes into view. We told you there would be adult content. So dial 62442 because it's time to head to the Ministry of Magic.
0: Mel, welcome to Level 3, Department of Magical Accidents, Catastrophes, including the Accidental Podcast, Reversal Squad, Obliviator Headquarters, and Muggleworthy Excuse Committee. This is the place to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Order Chapters 6 through 9, so let's get
1: aboard this Scarlet Steam Engine of Plot, the Hogwarts Express! There's a battle going on at 12 Grimalt Place. Dun, dun, dun! A battle against filth! Dun, dun, dun! On one side... The Order of the Phoenix. On the
0: other... Creature. The Black family house elf is constantly wandering in and out of rooms trying to salvage items the group is trying to throw out. And one of those items, a locket that no one can open, which is also a horcrux.
1: Mm. Kind of a big deal. Mm. Sirius shows Harry the Black family tree. And Harry discovers that Sirius has multiple Death Eaters in the family. Embarrassing. Sirius is not happy about it
0: either. Finally... Harry's trial commences. Fudge tries to ensure Harry's conviction by moving up the time and changing the location without informing anyone.
1: Very tough stuff for our guy, Corn Fudge. Corn Fudge. <laughs> Not his best hour. <laughs> corn Fudge. Oh, corn. When Harry arrives, he's called out for his tardiness. But he's saved from conviction by the homie Arabella thing. She lies on her oath, but we'll let it go. <laughs> And the advocacy of Albus, Percival, Wolfric, Brian, Dumbledore! Back at Grimald Place, Ron and Hermione
0: learn that they've been made prefects. A shocking turn! Stunning turn! And Harry
1: feels a strange sensation prickling through his scar. Photograph of the original Order of the Phoenix and a boggart showing Mrs. Weasley the deaths of those closest to her remind Harry of the stakes. Mal? Yeah.
0: And there's my co-host, unnatural beasts we are. <laughs> and that gets us to this episode's big ideas. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters six through nine of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is Battle Alliance.
1: Chapter six, the noble and most ancient House of Black. Even within alliances, divisions sometimes sprout. Occasionally, those are serious in nature, as we will discuss much more today and moving forward. And sometimes they can be over something as trivial as bedtime. Naturally, the kiddos are not ready to go to sleep just because the MILF told them to. As soon as Ron locks the door to keep out Creature, he and Harry dive right in to debriefing on all that they've learned. When Ron draws breath upon hearing Harry say, Voldemort, Harry calls him out. When are you going to start using his name? Sirius and Lupin do. Not everybody on the same team thinks the same way or feels comfortable with the same things. This is important to remember. Harry and Dumbledore are atypical in their courage, but to some, even their closest friends, that courage can occasionally seem like willful madness. The twins join in, operating onto Ron's knees as one does, or as two do, and get right to the heart of it. What's up with this weapon that Sirius clearly lets slip. Ron says, quote, but there can't be anything worse than the Avada Kedavra curse, can there? What's worse than death? The weapon, we will learn in time, is the full contents of the prophecy. But don't focus on that ultimate reveal right now. Think about the substance of what Ron is saying, because that, of course, is a very Voldemortian idea, one that we will hear Tom Riddle spouse to Dumbledore as they're preparing to duel at the end of this book. There is nothing worse than death. Dumbledore, of course, will challenge this notion, use it to highlight Voldemort's narrow-mindedness, petty thinking. We should never lose sight of the other side of the battle line coin. The realization that sometimes those who are most starkly opposed actually believe in the same thing or are driven by the same doubt and fear. The difference, of course, is one of the central themes of the story. How do you respond? As is so often the case in this tale, the difference is the choice that you make.
0: Battle lines are being drawn for the second wizarding war, but those who lived through and participated in the first already know where they stand. The choice then, as now, between light and dark, life and death, equality and supremacist terror is stark. But don't make the mistake of thinking that that choice is easy or without consequence. Take our friend Sirius Black. His family is among the oldest and most storied pure-blood families in the Wizarding World, with a lineage reaching back to the Middle Ages.
1: You could call it noble and most ancient.
0: I think you could. Some (laughs) would. Some would even name a chapter that. (laughs) The Blacks were fervent believers in the pure-blood supremacist ideology espoused by Grindelwald and later Voldemort. It's easy to talk about having... Courage and conviction and ideals and doing the right thing from a distance when such noble concepts cost nothing. Sirius chose the right side, the side that doesn't murder and torture innocent people because they can. But that choice cost him the love and support of his family and Creature's loyalty also, at least in spirit. When the morning cleaning begins in earnest and Hermione begins to defend Creature against Mrs. Weasley's judgment, Sirius says, you'd be surprised what Creature can manage when he wants to. And we'll see in time how painfully true that is and at what cost Creature's independence will be for Sirius and Harry and the people we love. But in that moment, Creature's battle line against Sirius has lower stakes. Seemingly, the ancient Creature, wearing nothing but a loincloth, disgusting, very tough, wanders in. Showing no concern or even awareness for other people in the room, muttering about Mundungus smelling disgusting and (laughs) Mrs. Weasley being a blood traitor whose brats are messing up his mistress's house. Oh, my poor mistress, if she knew, if she knew the scum they let in her house, what would she say to old creature? (laughs) Oh, the shame of it. My bloods and werewolves and traitors and thieves. Poor old creature, what can he do?
1: Creature sounds kind of hot. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> he speaks aloud to those in the room as they address him and then mutters insults under his breath. And there's its twin, unnatural little beast they are. <laughs> Guess we can assume Creature's not signing up for early skiving snack box mail order service Fred and George have set up while testing their product on themselves. When Hermione, a great house self-defender, introduces Creature to Harry, he says, The run is talking to Creature <laughs> as though she is my friend. Oh my God. I'm doing Creature like Metal Gear narration. <laughs> Creature's tale is a tragedy. Yes. And the mistreatment he suffers, which we will discuss at length, and is truly troubling, it's oh, hard awful. to read, has dire consequences. But... What he's saying is bigoted and foul. And when Creature leads the House Elf charge in Deathly Hallows, it's a signature moment of redemption and a reminder of the gifts that tolerance and kindness can yield. But here, he's clearly on the other side of the battle line. These aren't the people he wants to help; they're the people he wants to tear down.
1: That's because Creature, who is openly lamenting how Sirius broke his poor mother's heart, is fully devoted to the memory of the non-serious members of the Black family, and he has been creeping creeping in and out of rooms trying to save Black family heirlooms from the ongoing cleaning efforts. At this particular moment, he's trying to protect a large tapestry portraying the Black family tree. Sirius orders Creature to go away, a line and a message not dissimilar from the one Sirius will issue just before Christmas when he shouts at Creature, out, which in that instance, Creature takes his permission to leave the premises. As Creature leaves the room, he murmurs that Sirius is a murderer. To which Sirius replies, keep muttering and I will be a murderer. Now. <laughs> Tough stuff. <laughs> armed with the knowledge of the fate that awaits Sirius and the role that Creature will play in that end, moments like this cut like a knife on a reread. These are the instances that Dumbledore will cause Harry and us alike to reflect on in the lost prophecy later in the book when he says, Creature is what he has been made by wizards. Hermione suggests setting Creature free, but Sirius nips that in the bud immediately. He knows too much about the order. So here he is, in the trenches, in the command center. He can't be allowed to wander over the battle lines, and yet that's exactly where neglect will ultimately lead him to go. Sirius,
0: unburdened by concerns over Creature's wellness, walks over to the tapestry where the words, toujours pure, always pure, stand, always pure. Mm. Harry, Ron, and Hermione follow Harry notes that Sirius isn't on the tapestry I used to be there said Sirius pointing at a small round charred hole in the tapestry rather like a cigarette burn My sweet old mother blasted me off after I ran away from home Creature's quite fond of muttering the story under his breath (laughs) Harry asks where Sirius, who we learn was 16 at the time when he ran away went. Your dad's place, said Sirius. Your grandparents were really good about it. They sort of adopted me as a second son. The parallels between Harry and Sirius's life stand out like the branches of the black family tree. Both found other families after fleeing unwelcoming homes. Harry went to the borough in the warm embrace of the Weasley clan, Sirius fled the hatred of his home for the Potter household. Both were treated as sons in their newfound families. Both even inherited a nice bit of gold, thanks Uncle Alphard. The (laughs) battle lines for Harry, though, were drawn without his consent when Voldemort murdered his family and attempted to murder him, dooming him to that miserable childhood. Sirius's choice, though he doesn't say so directly, must have been painful, he says. I hated the whole lot of them. My parents with their pure blood mania convinced that to be a black made you practically royal. My idiot brother soft enough to believe them. That's him. This is the first mention of Regulus Black. We learn here that he died some 15 years prior, that he was Sirius's younger brother, and that he was a death eater. It will not be until Hallows that we learn the much more complex truths, that Regulus decided to cross the battle lines and turn against Voldemort, and that his decision to do so by stealing Voldemort's lock at Horcrux cost him his life and fundamentally altered the lives of many others, including creature and in time Dumbledore and Harry and more. Sirius never got to discover that his brother had redeemed himself. He died believing that the whole black family, even those who blanched at Voldemort's extreme methods, shared the Dark Lord's goals of purifying the wizard race. He says, I bet my parents thought Regulus was a right little hero for joining up at first when Harry asks if Orr's killed Regulus. Siri he says, No, no, he was murdered by Voldemort. Or on Voldemort's orders, more likely I doubt Regulus was ever important enough to be killed by Voldemort in person. That's a burn. As we'll learn... This couldn't be further from the truth. Regulus was incredibly important. One of the few who ever learned the truth about Voldemort's Horcrux ambition and certainly one of the only men ever brave enough who was
1: in his inner circle yeah. to stand up to him and try to destroy one. Sirius notes that Tonks isn't on the tapestry either, and Harry's surprised to learn that she and Sirius are related. Someone else is on the tapestry. Bellatrix Lestrange, Ne Black, Sirius's cousin, and... Is that Draco Malfoy's music? Tough look. <laughs> Narcissa Black, Bellatrix and Andromeda's sister, married Lucius Malfoy. Harry is horrified. But Sirius notes that all the pureblood families are interrelated. Even he and Molly are cousins by marriage, and Arthur's, quote, something like my second cousin once removed. Just uh, feel compelled to note that Cersei and Jamie would yes. love the wizarding world and this family. Harry recovers from the Malfoy shock quickly. Homes in on Bellatrix's name. She's a death eater, as is her husband, Rodolphus, and his brother, Robaston. Hearing their names and that they're in Azkaban triggers Harry's memory. These are the people that he saw in Dumbledore's pensive when he explored Dumbledore's memories. They, along with Barty Crouch Jr., (laughs) tortured the Longbottoms into madness. They are the worst of the worst, the most fervent of Voldemort's supporters. Harry says, you never said she was your, does it matter if she's my cousin, snaps Sirius? As far as I'm concerned, they're not my family. She's certainly not my family. Harry, who of course also would not want to be judged by his relatives, the Dursleys, hastily apologizes. But Sirius shrugs him off. He's not mad at Harry. He's mad that he's back in this place. Quote, I don't like being back here, he said, staring across the drawing room. I never thought I'd be stuck in this house again. Sirius's hair is long and shaggy. His hands are in his pocket. He's talking about how he doesn't like being home. He feels in so many ways like a kid, trapped inside a physical reminder of the childhood that he loathed and worked to escape. Harry, of course, understands this. This is how he feels every summer when he has to leave the magical world for Privet Drive. And he thinks about what it would be like if he found out he had to go back there later in life. But though being back at Grimmauld Place is unpleasant for Sirius, there's something extremely poetic about the Order using the home of pureblood supremacists as its base in the war against Voldemort, using the very wards and enchantments that the bigots who lived there intended to keep those they deemed inferior away to instead protect and facilitate their efforts to fight for equality and tolerance. Quote, it's ideal for headquarters, of course, Sirius said. My father put every security measure known to wizard kind on it when he lived here. It's unplottable, so muggles could never come and call, as if they'd have wanted to and now Dumbledore's added his protection you'd be hard put to find a safer house anywhere Dumbledore we learn is secret keeper for the order the note that Harry read upon his arrival was from Albus say it with me no, no safer place, place than 12 Grimaud
0: place <laughs> Sirius wouldn't mind so much he says if he could just get out into the world he's requested to escort Harry to his hearing this guy's the snuffles the dog The crushing weight of the looming hearing weighs down on Harry anew. Which side of the battle will the ministry come down on? That this is even a question must be a shock for Harry and his friends. Yet here they are, and he is, facing the very real prospect of being expelled from Hogwarts and losing his place in the world. What would his life be like then? Sirius tells Harry, don't worry. And there follows a heartbreaking exchange. But if they do expel me, said Harry quietly, can I come back here and live with you? (sighs) Sirius smiled sadly. We'll see. I'd feel a lot better about the hearing if I knew I didn't have to go back to the Dursleys, Harry pressed him. They must be bad if you prefer this place, said Sirius gloomily. We'll see. Presumably Sirius, like the Weasleys, know that Dumbledore wants Harry at the Dursleys, but it's also easy to read this response from Sirius as the utterance of a man who feels helpless. Hopeless, back in the place he occupied before he had agency under the thumb of a leader who— While well-intentioned is still robbing him of his liberty today, Sirius surely would like nothing more than to ease Harry's mind in any way he can. He's the one member of the Order pushing to tell Harry more about what's happening. But even this is complicated, and Sirius once again has to make hard choices about family. Harry, Sirius, and Dumbledore are all on the same side of the battle, of course, But one of the central tensions of the story, and one that will be steadily revealed throughout this book and further books, is can you be fully loyal to Dumbledore's vision of how to
1: wage this war and be loyal to Harry at the same time? A question Harry himself will have to answer right up until the end. The cleanup continues. Harry sets to emptying the contents of several glass cabinets. It is surprisingly difficult, though, because, quote, Many of the objects in there seem very reluctant to leave their dusty shelves. It is, as Harry will later note, as if the Order is waging war on the house itself, on its institutional memory, as embodied in many ways by Creature, who, when Sirius forces him to give up Sirius' father's old ring, calls Sirius, quote, names Harry had never heard before. Wow! <laughs> and Harry hangs around Fred and George and Ron, so my goodness. Creature is actually brazen enough. When Sirius threatens him with clothes to say that he knows Sirius can't free him because Creature is aware that they're plotting against the Dark Lord. They are prepping for a battle with a self-identified would-be spy in their midst. And there's nothing they can do about it. Other than clean, of course. And there are many fascinating things in the cabinets. Strange silver instruments that scuttle like spiders. A snuffbox that bites Sleep inducing music box that only Ginny is wise enough to snap shut. <laughs> really street smart now that she's been right. um, possessed by our good friend Tom. Yes. And, quote, a heavy locket that none of them can open. Dun dun dun. And everybody's. <laughs> a-
0: <laughs> Extremely powerful wizards find a locket they
1: can't open. What should we do? Let's throw it out. <laughs> Let's get rid of this thing. This is really one of J.K. Rowling's most masterful clues, casually dropped into the middle of a sentence. Seemingly so innocuous, but right there for us to see and latch onto and theorize over, as legions did while trying to figure out all of the horcruxes in the wait between Prince and Hallows. This, of course, will prove to be Salazar Slytherin's locket, which Voldemort turned into a horcrux and which Regulus discovered, and, with the help of Creature, recovered. To follow that locket's journey across the years is to trace the outlines of the shifting battle lines between Voldemort and those who oppose him. Much more on this in our
0: episodes to come. The night before the trial, at dinner, Molly tells Harry that she's ironed his best outfit and he's to wash his hair. She wants him looking his best. Everything at the table stops. Harry tries to maintain a cool exterior despite the turmoil within and asks, "How am I getting there?" Arthur is taking him. Harry looks to Sirius, but before either can say anything. Molly, who's firmly in the Dumbledore knows best camp when it comes to Harry, heads him off. Professor Dumbledore doesn't think it's a good idea for Sirius to go with you, and I must say I think he's quite right, Sirius says through clenched teeth. Clearly frustrated by the ruling and his inability to A, make his own decisions, and B, be there for Harry in this moment of real need. Mm -hmm. But wait a moment. When did they speak to Dumbledore? He came last night when you were in bed, said Mr. Weasley. The thought that Dumbledore had been in the house on the eve of his hearing and not asked to see him made him feel, if that were possible, even worse.
1: Mm, such a devastating
0: Harry is moment. preparing for battles on numerous fronts against the Ministry, against Voldemort, and though he doesn't know it yet, against legions of witches and wizards who will doubt his story and his character. If he can't
1: rely on Dumbledore to comfort and guide him, what does he have to rely on? Chapter 7, The Ministry of Magic. It's the morning of the trial. And though Harry wakes at 5.30, he finds the kitchen full of friendly, supportive faces. Mr. and Mrs. Weasley, Sirius Lupin Tonks, the family, Harry is chosen. Quote, all were fully dressed except Mrs. Weasley. Aha! Now we know why Order of the Phoenix is really Jason's favorite book. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Still, the mood in the house is tense, and there's irony here. At least with Voldemort, Harry knows where the battle lines are, knows exactly where he stands. The ministry should be on his side, staffed in part by people like Arthur and Kingsley and Tonks, dedicated members of the Order of the Phoenix. It should be going all out in the war against Voldemort, and yet the ministry has abdicated its responsibility to protect its constituents. The corn fudge regime denies that Voldemort has returned, denies everything that happened in the little Hangleton graveyard, and views anyone who says otherwise, Dumbledore and Harry chief among them, as traitors and instigators. As a result, Harry's going into a situation in which it's nearly impossible to know where the battle lines actually are. Over breakfast, order members try to help him find his bearings. Arthur tells Harry that the hearing's on his floor in Amelia Bones' office, to which Tonks adds, Amelia Bones is okay, Harry. She's fair. Mm -hmm. She'll hear you out. Sirius, showing that though they've spent little actual time together, he really knows his godson implores Harry not to lose his cool. Don't lose your temper. Be polite. Stick to the facts. Lupin pipes up, too. Quote, "'The law's on your side. Even underage wizards are allowed to use magic in life-threatening situations.'" Yes, sure, but who's interpreting the law? Harry's filled with dread as Mrs. Weasley wets his hair, desperately trying to flatten it. And the way Sirius and Tonks and Lupin are acting, though obviously supportive and encouraging, tells us that Harry's right to be concerned. Quote, "'You'll be all right, Harry,' said Tonks, patting him on the arm. "'Good luck,' said Lupin. "'I'm sure it will be fine.'" And if it's not, said Sirius grimly, I'll see to Amelia Bones for you. Harry and Arthur, who's wearing pinstripe trousers and an old
0: bomber jacket, looking very hipstery. Love it. Leave early for the hearing and they don't use magic to get to the ministry. Arthur doesn't want to risk anything given Harry's charges. Again, concerning, thankfully. Arthur's almost always good for some lighthearted relief. At the tube station, we get this delightful exchange. Simply fabulous, he whispered, indicating the automatic ticket machine. Wonderfully ingenious. They're out of order, said Harry, pointing at the sign. (laughs) Harry buys the tickets for the underground because, quote, Mr. Weasley was not very good with muggle money. (laughs) Unbelievable. Amazing. (laughs) God. They arrive at a street full of shabby buildings, a pub and an overflowing dumpster. Oh, wondrous! <laughs> from the book. Harriet expected a rather more impressive location for the Ministry of Magic, but then Arthur directs Harry toward a red phone booth with several missing glass panes, and from there, what we see is spectacular. The speakeasy-style telephone box entrance grants them admission to the chamber below, the vast and splendidly appointed hall, the walls honeycombed with fireplaces, witches and wizards stepping in and out of them, the grand statues in the middle of the fountain sparkling with coins, paper airplanes flying in and out of the elevator, magically enchanted windows to bring daily weather to the underground facility. Harry is odd, but considering the circumstances, he can't enjoy the splendid surroundings. Arthur takes Harry by the Auror Office, where Kingsley is hard (coughs) 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 at work on the Sirius Black investigation. They assume a stiff air. No one can know that they're in a secret fighting force, after all. But under the cover of discussing flying vehicles and Sirius's old motorbike, throwback reference to the first book, of course, Kingsley hands Arthur some parchment, ostensibly about what they were talking about, but really, there's a copy of the Quibbler inside. And also, guys, like, cool it! (laughs) Can we cool it down?
1: (laughs) (laughs) A little more subtlety, please. A real testament to how unobservant (laughs) they think everyone in the industry is. Ah, yes. I
0: need to see about that. Come by tonight. Molly is making the meatballs at the headquarters of the secret society. (laughs) This is touching stuff. Kingsley wants Sirius confined to the headquarters to see the article about him that we'll get to read through Harry's eyes in a few chapters. It's a claim that Sirius is really stubby Boardman, lead singer of the Hobgoblins. Amazing. Arthur fronts that he doesn't have time to investigate the flying vehicles at the moment, then leans in and whispers that thing about the meatballs back at 12 Grimmauld. Sometimes we don't know which enemies are on the other side of the battle, but sometimes other people don't know who our allies truly are.
1: Arthur takes Harry to his office to wait for the trial time. And as Harry soaks in some of Arthur's daily routine, regurgitating toilet, anti-muggle pranksters, said Mr. Weasley, frowning. We had two last week, one in Wimbledon, one in Elephant and Castle. Muggles are pulling the flush and instead of everything disappearing, well, you can imagine. Indeed we can. Perkins, Arthur's office mate, rushes in. Mr. Weasley brought Harry in early, thinking he would have plenty of time to catch his breath and get in a good frame of mind for what will surely be a consequential moment in his life. And then everything blows up, just like those toilets. Perkins has urgent news. The trial time and location have moved. Harry should have been there five minutes ago. Arthur, lovable dumpling that he is, again displays poor form when it comes to calming a nervous party. When Harry asks why they moved the hearing, Mr. Weasley frantically replies, I have no idea. (laughs) But thank goodness we got here so early. If you'd missed it, it would have been catastrophic. Way to soothe those nerves, Arthur. He notes, as he's furiously pounding on the lift keys to try to speed up their descent, that the old courtroom they're heading toward hasn't been used in years. Again, ominous. One of their elevator mates, by the way, our boy Bode, an unspeakable, bound for unspeakable misery later in this book. The cool female voice directing traffic announces that they've arrived at their destination. Department of Mysteries. The walls are bare. There are no doors other than a plain black one at the end of the corridor. Harry doesn't connect the dots here, but this is the corridor that he's been dreaming of. Arthur pulls him onward toward courtroom 10 and bids Harry goodbye and good luck. He's not allowed in. This battle, Harry must face alone.
0: Chapter 8, The Hearing. Harry is stunned when he enters. Not only is this not a small courtroom near Arthur's office, it's the infamous dungeon room that Harry saw in Dumbledore's pensive in Goblet of Fire. The setting is grim. This is a place for the worst of the worst. Harry saw the Lestranges and Barty sentenced to Azkaban in here. Surely this isn't the place for a teenage student who is simply defending himself. Harry stands in the dim stone walled room facing the plum garbed gamut. The chair he has to sit in has chains on the arms. And, and although they don't bind him, they still sicken him. Think about that. He has to sit in a chair which was used for hardened criminals. Cornelius Fudge addresses Harry, remarking on Harry's tardiness. Tardiness, by the way, which Fudge, as the cause of it, knows Harry couldn't avoid. Gone is the fatherly cheer with which Fudge used to greet Harry. There's only determination. Fudge moved across the battle from Harry and Dumbledore at the end of Goblet of Fire. When he refused to accept that Voldemort had returned and when he abandoned his belief in Harry, he also abandoned reason. This isn't a routine case of underage magic. This is a chance, in Fudge's mind, to remove from the board a threat to his position. As Percy takes notes, Fudge begins the proceedings, reading the names of Harry's interrogators. 50 to 1, not exactly a level playing field, Yeah. but just as he's running through the names, he's interrupted. Witness for the defense, Albus Percival, Wulfric, Brian, Dumbledore, said a quiet voice from behind Harry. Dumbledore to the rescue!
1: Yes! Harry won't have to go it alone after all. Dumbledore's sudden appearance revives Harry, just as Fox has in the past. Quote, a powerful emotion had risen in Harry's chest at the sight of Dumbledore, a fortified, hopeful feeling rather like that which Phoenix song gave him. Notably, even amid this surge of hope, Dumbledore isn't catching Harry's eye. Albus's sudden emergence has quite a different impact on Cornfudge. He is shook. Obviously, the hearing <laughs> was rescheduled at the last minute yeah. to deprive Harry of any possible corroborating support. Specifically from Dumbledore. Fudge wanted this hearing to be a fait accompli. He's failed, which it must be said is the one thing the corn fudge is good at. Courtney! <laughs> this is an iconic exchange. Yeah. Quote Dumbledore Yes, you uh, got our uh, message that the time and uh, place of the hearing have been changed then? I must have missed it, said yeah. Dumbledore cheerfully. However, due to a lucky mistake, I arrived at the ministry three hours early. <laughs> So no harm done. <laughs> <laughs> Just been hanging out because I knew you would do some shit like this. What an icon. Oh, God. I love that so much. Corn was so sure that no one would be coming to testify. Corn! <laughs> then he only had one chair set up. He asked Weatherby, uh, excuse us, our good friend Percy. <laughs> uh, really, our good, our friend, good friend Percy. Percy. <laughs> to grab another. And this gives Dumbledore the chance to flex. Quote, Not to worry, not to worry, said Dumbledore pleasantly. He took out his wand, gave it a little flick, and a squashy chintz armchair appeared out of nowhere next to Harry. Dumbledore sat down, put the tips of his long fingers together, and looked at Fudge over them with an expression of polite interest.
0: Fudge reads the charges. Harry stands accused of conjuring a Patronus in a muggle area in the presence of a muggle. This places him, according to the charges... In breach of the underage sorcery law and the statute of secrecy, Fudge also notes that Harry has previously received an official ministry warning for impermissible magic. Dobby, what'd you do? Dobby! Harry's desperate, trying to interject so that he can explain why he conjured a Patronus, but the fascist Fudge won't let him get a word in edgewise. Someone else interrupts, though. Amelia Bones, who, you recall, Tonks vouched for and whose interest is highly piqued by what she's just heard. You produced a fully-fledged Patronus, she asks?
1: What if she had said a full? What would you have done? A full? I heard you produced a full. I heard you produced a full. <laughs> Fifteen, my lord. <laughs> I heard that's also around the age when you begin ejaculating loudly. Yes. Usually just in the mornings.
0: <laughs> a corporeal one with a clearly defined form? Harry confirms this. It's a stag. It's always a stag. She latches onto the word always, and he explains that he's been conjuring a full for more than a year. (laughs) And that Professor Lupin taught him the magic in his third year. She's impressed. Yes. A fully formed Patronus at that age is a feat. This is a great device now for showing us how advanced Harry's defensive magic is. Remember what we discussed during our Azkaban episodes. Many grown witches and wizards never learn how to work this magic. And a response like this from Bones reinforces for readers and characters alike how striking Harry's abilities are. Fudge, however, does not care. He's not here to talk about the quality of Harry's full. Neither does he care about the circumstances that led to Harry's transgression on August 2nd. In fact, he finds the impressive nature of the magic even more threatening. He fronts that this makes it more likely muggles would notice what happened. But it's reasonable to deduce that hearing what Harry's capable of just makes Harry more of a threat. This is a kangaroo court, and Fudge wants to nail Harry on his version of the specifics. Right. Only when Harry sees Percy, of all people, nodding sanctimoniously, does he finally get a full sentence out. I did it because of the Dementors. And Madame Bones is perplexed. Dementors out of Askman roaming the streets of a muggle neighborhood. Fudge, willingly deaf and blind to this, counters that he expected this kind of story from Harry. Another wild tale cooked up to cover for his crimes. No witnesses, you see, since muggles can't see Dementors from the book. Highly convenient, highly convenient. So it's just your word and no
1: witnesses? Not so fast, Corn. Dun-dun-dun! <laughs> you didn't think Dumbledore, the man across the battle lines, would be silent throughout this process, did you? Quote, we do, in fact— Have a witness to the presence of Dementors in that alleyway. Other than Dudley Dursley, I mean, Dumbledore tells the court. When the battle lines were first drawn in Goblet, there was instantly no doubt what side Fudge was on. His own. That's right. But given his position of power, Fudge's self-interest makes him an unwitting ally of Voldemort's. No, he's not a Death Eater. But by putting his own needs over the need to defend the wizarding community, he's basically doing Voldemort's work for him. The rigid, willful ignorance that Fudge and his minions, like Umbridge, have displayed since Voldemort regained his body gave our good friend Tom a year to build his strength and his numbers without the government actively attempting to hunt him down. Voldemort can kill in an instant. He can uproot lives with one whip of his wand. They gave him a year to mount his forces. And that of course, is after 13 years of not doing nearly enough to prepare everyone for just such a return. It is impossible to overstate the culpability that Fudge and his cohorts carry. Once decency, proactiveness, rationality, and courage fail, what chance does the rule of law stand? None at all. So naturally, Fudge tries to push through Dumbledore's objection. Quote, we haven't got time to listen to more taradiddles, I'm afraid, Dumbledore. I want this dealt with quickly. Dumbledore, though, understands procedure and possesses enough gravitas to make Fudge succumb. I may be wrong, said Dumbledore pleasantly, but I am sure that under the Wizengamot Charter of Rights, the accused has the right to present witnesses for his or her case. Once Madame Bones confirms Dumbledore's statement, Fudge, with reluctance, allows the witness. Is that...
0: Arabella Fig's music! Well, <laughs> Is that Bella Fig in the house? <laughs> Bella Doreen. <laughs> Bella Doreen Fig got that pussy working for her. <laughs> That's right. It's your favorite cat obsessed neighbor, recently revealed to be a squib in the employ of Dumbledore, working a long term deep cover mission to keep an eye on Harry via that street pussy when he's home for the summer. From the book. She looks scared and more batty than ever. Harry wished she had thought to change out of her carpet slippers. Come on. Man. Those are, first of all. Comfy, though. First of all, let me say one thing. Those are supreme slides. (laughs) That was a hot drop. My guy, Harry. So let her live. Arabella Fig, a true hype beast on these streets. My idol. After the initial confusion over there not being any record of any witch or wizard living near Harry, a situation that naturally has been closely monitored, Arabella D. shares that she's a squib and then shares her story. She was out walking to buy cat food one evening, of course. Though, this is Please allow us to recommend Instacart, which goes to Petco for you. It's really handy. Saves you a lot of time. When she heard a disturbance at the location in question, it feels like Mrs. Fig is reciting something. She's committed to memory, which she probably is. She walked over to investigate the commotion and witnessed the Dementors running. Excuse us, Madam Bones. Gliding! <laughs> did great, I say running? Great moment. I meant gliding. <laughs> it's a figure of speech. <laughs> toward Harry and Dudley. What did they look like? Said Madam Bones. Well, one was very large and the other one was rather skinny. ha <laughs> <laughs> ha! Oh, no, not Dudley and Harry, you twit. Oh, let's see. She continues. They were big, big and wearing cloaks. Now, though Fudge asked if squibs can see Dementors, and by the way, wild to think the Minister of Magic would not know this. Stunned that corn, Corn Fudge isn't well informed and Mrs. Fig said they can, we should note that non-magical people, including Squibbs, cannot see Dementors. So she's lying under oath here. And by the way, this has been confirmed by no less than Jake here herself, who said on her old website that Mrs. Fig never saw them, but understood this sensation enough to make the identification. So again, Mrs. Fig is lying here. An extreme measure, to be sure, but a necessary one considering the battle at hand. Mrs. Fig is flailing, but then she grabs a life raft. She describes the way the Dementors make people feel. Everything went cold, and this was a very warm summer's night, mark you. And I felt as though all happiness had gone from the world, and I remembered dreadful things. Madame Bones' eyes widen, and she asks Figgy for more. Figgy obliges. Then Dementors, quote, went for the boys, and her voice grows more confident as she describes the
1: attack and Harry's Patronus. Fudge dismisses Figgy. He still isn't buying the story, though Madam Bones seems to think that Mrs. Fig was a credible witness. Why, Madam Bones asks, would Figgy lie? This is exactly the kind of question that Fudge, who is determined to ignore the truth, cannot allow himself to even consider. As soon as he does, the house of cards that he's constructed around his grasp on power will tumble down. Quote, But Dementors wandering into a muggle suburb and just happening to come across a wizard, snorted Fudge. The odds on that must be very, very long. Even Bagman wouldn't have bet. First of all, shouts to Ludo literal Bagman Bagman, who has become a punchline in the highest court in the land since going on the land. What a legacy. What a king Bagman is. Man. But this line of thinking from Fudge is... Exactly the opening that Dumbledore needed. Fudge just handed his foe ammo. Quote, Oh, I don't think any of us believe the Dementors were there by coincidence, said Dumbledore Um. lightly. Think back on Dumbledore's speech to Fudge in The Parting of the Ways at the end of Goblet. It's been clear since then that the disagreement between Fudge and Dumbledore is one of the primary battle lines. The Ministry is inept, a total mess. Every shred of evidence tells us this. And that means calling Fudge's leadership into question. Dumbledore reiterates his assertion, which he first raised as a possibility during that aforementioned speech that the Dementors might not now be fully under the Ministry's control. I think they were ordered there, said Dumbledore, and Fudge is enraged. He insists that the Ministry is in control of the Dementors, but Dumbledore has him. Every outcome here for Fudge is bad. As Dumbledore goes on to note, either the Dementors were ordered to Little Whinging by parties unknown within the Ministry—correct, as we'll later learn—or, The Dementors were ordered there by someone outside the ministry, meaning Voldemort or his allies. Fudge insists that Dumbledore's views are bilge, and that the Dementors are doing everything the ministry asks. So Dumbledore points out the problem. Quote, then we must ask ourselves why somebody within the ministry ordered a pair of Dementors into that alleyway on the 2nd of August. In the silence that follows
0: that remark, we're introduced to one of the story's most indelible villains. Many have argued that she not Voldemort is the most vile character in the books. I would agree, by the way, and her name is Dolores Umbridge. Let me pause for a minute and ask you a
1: question. Yeah, How do you feel about the fact that in the lead up to Order, yeah. many people yes. have come at you on Twitter saying, listen, you've been pro Dursley, you've been pro Rita, is, are you going to be pro Umbridge This is next? ridiculous.
0: <laughs> first of all, people are taking very simplistic readings of my positions. I'm not pro-Rita or (laughs) pro-Dursley. My position is nuanced. All I'm saying is, one, the Wizarding World does need a fourth estate. They need a press. They need a free press that is free to report. And that press should work along stringent guidelines of factualness, should hold itself to those high ideals. But that is necessary. And listen, you know, like she was right about that early stuff. It's when she started just making shit up that it was like, Beyond the pale, but her reporting on the World Cup was necessary. That's all. <laughs> and with the Dursleys, I'm just saying, how would you like it if someone like put a pig's tail on your child and then made his tongue blow up huge so that you were like, is he going to die now? <laughs> and then blew up your living room. That's all. <laughs> Dolores Umbridge is terrible. The senior undersecretary to the minister leans forward, and Harry observes that she looks. Like a toad. Hmm. Neville's like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I have misunderstood you, Professor El she said with a simper that left her big round eyes as cold as ever. Ugh. So silly of me. But it sounded for a teensy moment as though you were suggesting that the Ministry of Magic had ordered an attack on this boy. <laughs> <laughs> her laugh makes the hairs stand up on Harry's neck. This... Passive-aggressive framing. Oh, I must have something in my ears. Did you say so-and-so? Is a hallmark umbrage affectation. And perhaps, perhaps the most annoying one. Of course, we'll ultimately discover that it was, in fact, her who ordered the Dementors to the whinging that night. She's fully on fudge in the Ministry side of this battle, determined, even desperate to discredit Harry and Albus, and her vile, reckless mission will dominate Harry's fifth year in many, many ways. Here... Her manipulative speech pattern has no impact on Dumbledore, who again lays out the possibilities. Either Dementors were there or they weren't. If they were, someone ordered them there, either someone in the ministry or someone else. If it was someone else, that would suggest. But Fudge must cling to his position no matter what it logically leads to. Having lost ground on Dementors were never there, he's made his new battle line. There are no Dementors outside Ministry control. And now if that's the case, Dumbledore says... Then surely the Ministry will investigate why these Dementors were there. Dumbledore is flawless here, calm, and his nemesis gives in to anchor, guided by cool logic as his foe desperately tries to maintain a foothold in a fake news rock face, quickly turning to dust. Fudge is supposed to be the Minister of Magic, and he's being owned in front of his peers. Bested by a man who most directly threatens his pride and security, because the bulk of the wizarding world wanted Dumbledore, not Cornfudge, to be minister in the first place, yes. and the third place, and the fourth place, and the many, <laughs> many other times that yes. they offered the position to Dumbledore from the book. It's not for you to decide what the Ministry of Magic does or does not do, Dumbledore, Fudge spits back, inadvertently revealing the source of his insecurity.
1: Fudge desperate now, quote, a shade of magenta of which Uncle Vernon would have been proud, tries to deflect the inquiry back to Harry's actions, which, yet again, gives Dumbledore the opening he needs. Quote, the presence of Dementors in that alleyway is highly relevant. Clause 7 of the decree states that magic may be used before muggles in exceptional circumstances. And as those exceptional circumstances include situations that threaten the life of the wizard or witch himself, or witches, wizards, or muggles present at the time of the We are familiar with Clause 7, thank you very much, snarled Fudge. Of course you are, said Dumbledore courteously. Then we are in agreement that Harry's use of the Patronus charm in these circumstances falls precisely into the category of exceptional circumstances it describes. When Fudge again pushes back on the idea of Dementors even being there, Dumbledore gets heated for the first time. You've heard from an eyewitness, he notes. Call her back in and question her again if you need to. Quote, I want this over with today, Dumbledore, Fudge says, totally telling on himself here. Dumbledore replies, but naturally, you would not care how many times you heard from a witness if the alternative was a serious miscarriage of justice? Checkmate. The fudge isn't finished. The hover charm, he says. I'll summon the dobster here in an instant, Dumbledore replies. He blew up his aunt. Corn shouts, literally spilling his ink bottle like a toddler having a tantrum. And you very kindly did not press charges on that occasion, accepting, I presume, that even the best wizards cannot always control their emotions, said Dumbledore calmly Tough. as Fudge attempted to scrub the ink off his notes. Just an incredible showing here from Dumbledore. Fudge has a final card to play, he says. And I haven't even
0: started on what he gets up to at school. Mm-hmm. Nor will you start on that, corn, because Dumbledore says from the book with a suggestion of coolness behind his words observes that Fudge has no power to punish students over what happens at Hogwarts. Just as the law says wands can't be confiscated until charges are proven, all of which we learn Dumbledore reminded Fudge of on the night Harry got his ministry letter. The minister's response here is chilling. Laws can be changed, he says. Even here, Dumbledore doesn't cow. And you certainly seem to be making many changes, Cornelius. Why, in the few short weeks since I was asked to leave the wizengamot, it is already become the practice to hold a full criminal trial to deal with a simple matter of underage magic. He calls for the verdict, a ruling in this particular battle, and Harry finds himself unable to speak. He's worried that he didn't do enough, but Dumbledore fought this battle for him. Though a hardcore minority, including Fudge and Umbridge vote for conviction, Harry is cleared with more than half of the assembled voting in his favor. He's won this battle but the war with the Ministry is just beginning. Can he count on Dumbledore to reveal the battle plans and mount a defense together as a true team, a true unit? At the moment, it does not appear so. Excellent, said Dumbledore, briskly springing to his feet, pulling out his wand and causing the two chintz armchairs to vanish. Well, I must be getting along. Good day to you all. Without looking once at Harry, he swept from the dungeon. Dag. Tough stuff. Chapter 9, The Woes of Mrs. Weasley. Great chapter. Really. Arthur is shocked to see the full court spill out, including his son, Percy, who does not acknowledge him, but is delighted with the outcome and wants to take Harry straight back to Grimall Place so that everyone can share in the fantastic news. He'll drop Harry off on his way to deal with the jinxed muggle toilet, Arthur says. Arthur says something interesting here, by the way. Oh, it's a simple enough anti-jinx, said Mr. Weasley as they mounted the stairs, but it's not so much having to repair the damage, it's more the attitude behind the vandalism, Harry. Muggle baiting might strike some wizards as funny, but it's an expression of something much deeper and nastier. This is a great point. Using your powers on people who can't possibly defend themselves or even comprehend what is happening is an expression of disdain, which can easily bloom into something more menacing. If it's okay to do this to muggles, if no one stands against it, then it's only natural that Whoever comes next might take things further and so on and so forth. And, of course, we should realize that Arthur here is criticizing his own sons, Fred and George, who very recently did this exact thing that he's talking about to good old icky
1: Sweet Popkin. <laughs> Sweet Popkin, Big D. <laughs> on the way out, Arthur and Harry run into Lucius Malfoy. Well, 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 Patronus Potter. <laughs> Not a terrible nickname. I didn't mean, like what he...
0: That's like a good one. What are you doing?
1: Amazing. Patronus
0: Potter. I love it. It's it's a great nickname. (laughs) Talking about Lucius.
1: Uh, Harry already knows what side of the battle Lucius is on. Lucius was one of the Death Eaters who answered the newly revived Voldemort's call in the graveyard in Little Hangleton. Harry feels winded just looking at Lucius, who's there for a private meeting with Minister Fudge. Quote, he could not believe that Lucius Malfoy dared look him in the face. He could not believe that he was here in the Ministry of Magic or that Cornelius Fudge was talking to him when Harry had told Fudge mere weeks ago that Malfoy was a Death Eater. We speak often of how despite all that Harry has been through, all the trials and traumas that he's shouldered, it's important to remember that he is still just a boy. And here's another instance. He isn't yet jaded enough to stop believing in social norms and basic human decency. He's still surprised by something like this. He still believes that shame should guide people. Moments like this, though, start to inform him otherwise, reminding him that sometimes those on the other side of the battle live in the shadows or wear a mask out in the open. Lucius's Death Eater mask isn't the real shroud. As he says in the Goblet of Fire movie, the persona that he assumes in public is the real mask. Harry raises a very valid concern.
0: If Fudge is meeting with Death Eaters, might he be under the Imperius curse? Arthur says this very thought has occurred to the Order, but they believe Fudge is acting of his own accord from the book, which, as Dumbledore says, is not a lot of comfort. Perhaps even less of a comfort, it's undeniably terrifying to contemplate a world where you can't tell who's being controlled. This was the reality during the first Wizarding War, and the exact fear Harry expresses here will come to pass in Deathly Hallows when pious Thickness is in fact placed under the imperious curse on his way to becoming Voldemort's puppet minister. But it's as unnerving, maybe more, to think of people who should be on your side of the battle, willfully deciding not to be fudge. He has agency, as does Umbridge, and neither are supporting Harry.
1: Harry returns to a house that feels much more cheerful and welcoming now that he's gotten off. Everybody's much more... Cheerful when they get off, usually, yes. typically. <laughs> Only one person sulking. Sirius, whose initial joy for Harry quickly fades into a surly mood. Hermione, as usual, is unafraid to take a stance here, telling Harry not to feel guilty and noting that Sirius is behaving selfishly. She posits that part of Sirius was hoping Harry would be expelled mm-hmm. so that they could be outcasts together. Quote, I sometimes think Ron's mom's right, and Sirius gets confused about whether you're you or your father, Harry, she says. Harry, who even amid his post-acquittal bliss is always teetering on the edge of an outburst, asks Hermione heatedly if she thinks Sirius is touched in the head, and her response shows an uncommon level of empathy and awareness. Quote, no, I just think he's been very lonely for a long time. She's right. And what's more, she has a keen enough grasp on the human condition to know what loneliness can lead to. Of course Sirius wants what's best for Harry, but Sirius also wants the thing that Harry represents, family and friendship. Sometimes the battle lines aren't clear, even for ourselves and those closest to us. On the last
0: day of the holidays, their Hogwarts book lists arrive. As Ron notes, quite a bit later than usual, the result, as we soon learn from Fenn George, of the delay in finding a defense professor. Dumbledore's really struggled to find someone this year as Harry ticks off what happened to the last four Defense Against the Dark Arts professors. Fred asks Ron why he's gone silent. When Ron remains silent, Fred goes to look at his letter. Prefect. He said, staring incredulously at the letter, Prefect! George grabs the envelope and shakes out the prefect In No way, said George in a hushed voice. There's been a mistake, said Fred. They turn to Harry. We thought you were a cert, Fred says. We thought Dumbledore was bound to pick you. George adds, the only explanation in their minds is that Harry has caused too much trouble, which is just fine by them. Well, At least one of you's got their priorities right. And listen, we're as shocked as the twins
1: are. This is ridiculous. Stunning. Fine. Stunning. I understand not giving it to Harry. Your backup is wrong? Look, it was never going to be Neville, but this is the greatest indictment to date of Seamus and Dean. Seamus, not a great book for Seamus, by the way, this one. Fake news
0: Seamus is (laughs) in effect in this book. But it's like, there's no one else.
1: Do you think Megalian had a hand in the outcome here?
0: She's like, well, if it can't be Harry, I need somebody that I can control. (laughs) (laughs) This is a tough one. Ron, still silent, hands the badge to Harry to examine. And just as the pin is in Harry's hand, Hermione barges in. Did you, did you get? She spotted the badge in Harry's hand and (laughs) let out a shriek. I knew it! She said, excitedly brandishing her letter. Me too, Harry, me too. He corrects the record. Sorry, man, it's Ron.
1: Tough look for our guy, Ron, here. <laughs>
0: Ron? Said <laughs> Hermione, her jaw dropping. But are you sure? I mean, this is the man you're going to marry, Hermione. Oh, God. So oh, calm down. Man. But she speaks for all of us, does she not? Including yes. Harry, as we'll get to in a minute. Worth noting how well this scene works in conjunction with Ron's later insecurity about Hermione liking Harry more, a jealous worry that will rise when he abandons the Hallows hunt. And again when he returns and destroys the locket and its vision of Harry and Hermione together.
1: Quite intimately together.
0: Quite intimately together, Ron.
1: Before we slip into Harry's mind, we get to experience the pure joy of Mrs. Weasley's reaction. Right, this is incredible stuff. This is great. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Oh, Ron, how wonderful a prefect. That's everyone in the family. <laughs> What are Fred and I, next door neighbors, (laughs) said George indignantly (laughs) as his mother pushed him aside and flung her arms around her youngest son? I mean, listen, in in all
0: all respect to Fred and George, no one ever harbored any kind of thought that they would ever be prefix or upstanding citizens in any right.
1: They're wonderful young men. That's everyone in the family that was like, <laughs> is brutal. <laughs> such a dunk. Nothing can impede her bliss. Quote What a thing to happen in the middle of all this worry. What a thing indeed. Molly has shouldered a heavy load, helping the Order's efforts, worrying about every member of her family. The fear, as we will see later in this chapter, gnaws at her. And how could it not? What a gift then to have something to celebrate, reason to believe the pleasant surprises are still in store. Mrs. Weasley asked what reward Ron would like, and barely daring to believe his luck, he asked for a new broom. It's a heartbreaking request. Quote, Mrs. Weasley's face fell slightly. Broomsticks were expensive. Not a really good one, Ron hastened to add, just just a new one for a change. Mrs. Weasley hesitated, then smiled. Of course you can. And this moment forces us to think, what is the war for, if not for something like this? Why fight? if not to position yourself to celebrate the ones that you love. This moment isn't just about the money or the broom or even about Ron becoming a prefect. It's about everything it represents, hope and love, having something worth fighting for.
0: After the twins mock Ron a little bit more and disapparate, Ron rushes out to tell Mrs. Weasley which broom he wants, leaving Harry and Hermione alone together. From the book, for some reason Harry found that he did not want to look at Hermione. When Hermione calls his name, he congratulates her so heartily it did not sound like his voice at all. She asks to borrow Hedwig so that she can tell her parents the news. But when she leaves, Harry sinks into his bed alone. He'd forgotten about prefects being chosen heading into fifth year. From the book, but if he had remembered, if he had thought about it. What would he have expected? Not this, said a small and truthful voice inside his head. Not all battles rage, and one of the battles that's quietly simmered throughout the story is Harry's relationship to his own celebrity. He largely rejects it. When he says he wishes he could live a normal, anonymous life, he means it, but he also is a human being, and that means occasionally... Having an ego, having a sense of entitlement, getting used to the adulation, and given what Harry has faced and achieved, there's a danger of, at times, wanting to succumb to those instincts. From the book, again, he could not lie to himself. If he had known the prefect badge was on its way, he would have expected it to come to him, not Ron. Did this make him as arrogant as Draco Malfoy? Of course, Harry's very ability to ask this question That self-awareness is what sets him apart from Draco, who just expects that he would get the badge. Harry doesn't want to feel entitled, doesn't want to let arrogance grow like a weed inside of him. But also, like, you know, fair play,
1: Ron should not be prefect. This is (laughs) wild. (laughs) And because of that, Harry cannot quite quiet the voice inside of him that easily. What about everything outside of school? Quote, they didn't fight quarrel with me. They didn't take on Riddle, my good friend Tom, and the Basilisk. They didn't get rid of all those Dementors the night Sirius escaped. They weren't in that graveyard with me the night Voldemort returned. And the same feeling of ill usage that had overwhelmed him on the night he had arrived rose again. I've definitely done more, Harry thought indignantly. I've done more than either of them. Now, some readers hold this moment against Harry. But this, in our minds, is not weakness or arrogance. This is human nature. Who among us hasn't felt cheated out of something that a friend or colleague got instead? That's just normal. Harry's jealousy is entirely relatable. And what's more, this kind of introspection will prove fundamental for Harry at the end when he must know and accept himself in order to act. Harry finds peace here, though. Is he really going to sulk when Ron, for the first time, literally ever has beaten him at something? No. Indulging that thought is human but the ability to ultimately push it aside is what makes Harry, Harry. At the end of order, we'll get Dumbledore's explanation for why he didn't make Harry a prefect. Quote, I must confess that I rather thought you had enough responsibility to be going on with. Part of Harry's responsibility is having an open heart.
0: Mrs. Weasley puts together a little party to toast Ron and Hermione. The adults begin to discuss the prefects back in their days. Tonks reveals that she caused... Too much trouble to get the badge, and Sirius says the same. He and James were always in detention. Lupin was the good boy. He got the badge. Harry's mood lifts. His dad hadn't been prefect either. Feeling cheerful, he scoots over to Fred and George, who are busy procuring venomous tentacula. Classy, non-tradable substance from, who else, but Dungy Fletch.
1: Another great stretch here, by the way, for the do Fred and George care if they kill people line of inquiry. (laughs) It's honestly extremely lucky that no one died.
0: Isn't it? I mean, coming up here in the next batch of chapters, they will openly call for guinea pigs (laughs) to sign up at their own risk to test their shit. Anyway, Harry weirdly, for the first time, begins feeling uneasy about the inevitable future in which Arthur and Molly find out about the twins' (laughs) business. What if there's another battle, another falling out in the family, and Harry's again part of the reason why? Shadow investor. (laughs) Standing with his guilty thoughts, Harry overhears Kingsley asking Lupin why Dumbledore didn't make Harry a prefect. Quote, it would have shown confidence in him. It's what I'd have done, especially with the Daily Prophet having a go at him every few days, Kingsley says. And it's a great point. Dumbledore had his reasons for not giving Harry the badge, of course. But did he consider what a boon giving it to him could have been? Did he consider what Rift giving it to his best friend could have cost? And honestly, I think this is Dumbledore— getting in his head a little bit. We're used to Dumbledore using his power in not really direct ways, but forceful and authoritative ways. This is Dumbledore a little afraid and overcompensating. Whoa, what would it it do? Harry's got too much to deal with, so I'll do this. You know, you could even read the way he treated Harry on the way out of the courtroom as not wanting to not draw attention to like how close they are, you know, not make it seem like they're actually friends. He's just doing this as a responsibility to a student perhaps. That he doesn't have any interest in him beyond that. You know, Dumbledore could do more once again here.
1: Like he could have a conversation with Harry. It'd be nice. He could ask him. But it, <laughs> instead of freezing him out. You want to be a prefect? Yeah. How what do you do think? feel about that? How would
0: you feel about I know that, you know, it's not up there with defeating Voldemort in a duel, but do you want to be a prefect?
1: <laughs> Harry, feeling glum again after overhearing this exchange between Kingsley and Lupin, answers a summons from Moody, who says he has something that might interest Harry.
0: This A photo one, of dead people! This is
1: one of my favorite parts in any of the books. The whole end of this chapter is exceptional. This is, as Jason just said, an old wizarding photo of the original Order of the Phoenix. <sighs> it's so cheer you up, Harry. <laughs> what do you think about this? Harry looks down at the small group. Moody identifies himself, and Dumbledore, and Daedalus Diggle. Then Marlene McKinnon, who was killed two weeks after the photo was taken. Then Frank and Alice. Neville's parents, quote, Harry's stomach, already uncomfortable, clenched as he looked at Alice Longbottom. He knew her round, friendly face very well, even though he had never met her, because she was the image of her son Neville. Poor devils, growled Moody, better dead than what happened to them. He points out Emmeline Vance and Lupin and Benji Fenwick, quote, he copped it too. We only ever found bits of him. He shifts the photo to reveal more faces. Edgar Bones, quote, a great wizard, who was killed along with his family. Sturgis Podmore, who Moody had just noted hasn't returned his invisibility cloak in the present day. Caradoc Dearborn, whose body was never found. Hagrid, the homie Elpheus dog-breath doge. Gideon Pruitt, who, along with his brother Fabian, were killed by five Death Eaters. Quote, they fought like heroes. He shifts the photo again. Aberforth Dumbledore, quote, strange bloke. Dorcas Meadows, Ah. quote, Voldemort killed her personally. I love a Dorcas spinoff. Being killed personally by Voldemort means you were dope. Serious. and Harry's parents, quote, Harry's heart turned over. Wormtail, who will go on to betray them, sits between them, quote, evidently Moody was under the impression he had just given Harry a bit of a treat. Harry scoots out, wondering why the photo had shocked him so. He's seen his parents' photo before, after all, and he's met Wormtail in person, but he's never had them sprung on him like that. But it's not just that he saw his parents, happy, proud, unaware that the man who would go on to sell their whereabouts to Voldemort sat in their very midst. It's that Moody, in essence, shoved a graveyard in front of his face. Quote, to see them surrounded by all those happy faces, Benji Fenwick, who had been found in Bits and Gideon Pruitt, who had died like a hero, and the Longbottoms, who had been tortured into madness, all waving happily out of the photograph forevermore, not knowing that they were doomed. Well, Moody might find that interesting. He, Harry, found it disturbing. Think about that line, all waving happily out of the photograph forevermore, not knowing that they were doomed. The weight of that forces Harry to consider the stakes of the present day? Which of the people in the room with him now, in the house with him now, in order of the Phoenix 2.0, might meet the same fate in this battle? Will circumstances change that suddenly again? Think of how quickly that happened. That's part of what's horrifying about it. These people thought that they were fighting and winning, and then they were gone. Will aligning with Dumbledore on the side of light and good cost them all again?
0: Harry is forced to literally face this question moments later when wailing and sobbing leads him oh, to yeah. the drawing room. He sees Mrs. Weasley cowering, wand in hand, looking at a dead body on the floor. Ron's. All the air seemed to vanish from Harry's lungs. He felt as though he were falling from the floor. His brain turned icy cold. But then he realizes it can't be Ron because Ron was just there in the other room. When he calls Mrs. Weasley's name, she tries to choke out the ridiculous charm. And he realizes that what he's seeing is a boggart. Ron's body turns into Bill's, which turns into Mr. Weasley's, which turns into Fred and George's, which turns into Percy, which turns into Harry. Lupin, serious and moody, charging, and Lupin gets rid of the boggart and tells her that's all it was. But of course, that's not all because... What does a boggart do but shows someone their deepest fears? And no calming words can soothe these fears away. I see them dead all the time, Mrs. Weasley moaned into his shoulder. All the time I dream about it. She notes that half of her family is in the order and it'll be a miracle if they all come through this. And she's right, of course, to fear this because we know that not all of them will. Fred will fall in Deathly Hallows. Three of the other people in the room with her at that very moment will not make it. Battles have costs, costs that everyone has to pay even if they don't know it. From the book, Harry closing his bedroom door behind him some ten minutes later could not think Mrs. Weasley silly. He could still see his parents beaming up at him from that tattered old photograph, unaware that their lives, like so many of those around them, were drawing to a close. The corpse forms, the boggart just assumed, keep flashing before Harry's eyes. His scar sears. From the book, he felt older than he had ever felt in his life, and it seemed extraordinary to him that barely an hour ago, he had been worried about a joke shop and who had gotten a prefect's badge. Wow! By the way, this is when we like when I say that I love this book and the criticism of the book is Harry's so angsty. He's all in his head. He's addicted to people. He's overly emotional. What exactly is the alternative here? Like Harry is like this Superman Terminator who's just marching heroically forward into the battle. Uh, He's 15. He's surrounded by the threat of death. The very real threat. Someone just showed him a picture of people who are mostly dead. Right, And being like, hey, this was the good old days. We're about to do this again. Right, And it is no wonder in the face of that, that Harry's response, a lot of this book is, I don't want to do that. Right. I just want to like meet a girl and go on a date and play sports. Like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go marching to my death and the death of my friends. I don't want to do that.
1: Well, Why would I want to do that? And I think the other part of it, the related part is that. As his emotional response heightens, some of it translates in angst and anger, but some of it translates in what we see in these last two points with the photograph and with Molly's boggart. There's a real emotional maturation. Yes, Harry's introspective in a way that he previously was not capable of. And part of that is the way that J.K.R. is writing him in this book. In order, the writing levels up because Harry is thinking about things more seriously than he ever has before. The stakes are higher, and he is treating them as such. And when he has a moment like that where he thinks that he feels older than he ever has in his life, it's because something is required of him that never has been before, and he feels the weight of that keenly. It's amazing. Jason. Yes. In your admirable haste to ensure that the podcast law is upheld, you appear, inadvertently, Mm. I am sure, to have overlooked a few laws yourself. So please uphold them now. Please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about the wizengamot.
0: Ah, which came first, the law or the order? Well, in Wizarding Britain, they are one and the same as the Wizen Gamut serves as both high court and parliament. This administrative body predates even the ministry. While the ministry wasn't founded until 1707, 15 years after the establishment of the International Statute of Secrecy, the Wizengamot has been active for at least 150 years before that. This was back in the days of the Wizards Council, one of the more informal magical governing bodies in Britain, which as far as we know existed mainly to make rulings about Quidditch and discriminate against non-wizard magical beings like goblins, house elves, and werewolves. Things haven't changed much. The Wizen Gamut was important from the beginning, though, and remained a respected and imposing body in a transitional period. In fact, the first Minister of Magic, Ulick Gamp, assumed the new office directly after his tenure as Chief Warlock of the Wizen Gamut. Fast forward almost 300 years, because we don't know much about the Wizen Gamut's goings on in the interim. And Albus Dumbledore is stripped of his power as Chief Warlock, and Harry Potter brought to trial in front of the governing body. How does the Wizen Gamut operate? It's made up of around 50 members, most of them aged. Though the selection process is unclear, we know membership brings great prestige, which can be seen in their special rows, plum-colored and embroidered with an elaborate W on the left-hand side of the chest. Like with the muggle court system, positions on the wizen gamut— also seems inherently political as the wrestling over Dumbledore's seat indicates, and as we'll see later in order when members Griselda, Marchbanks, and Tiberius Ogden resign in protest of Umbridge's appointment as Hogwarts High Inquisitor. This isn't a surprise as the very word Rowling shows for her wizard Corps is itself a reference to a fusion of the magical and muggle worlds. Wizengamut is a portmanteau formed with the words wizard and wittengamut, which translates from Old English as meeting of wise men. This was a political institution in England in the Middle Ages which brought together the most powerful members of both the religious and landed classes to advise the king and deal with issues such as taxation and legal matters. That's kind of how the and Gamut functions, too. We don't know much about the body's role in legislative affairs, but both in this section of order and other briefer mentions throughout the series, we learn more about its role in jurisprudence. For instance... For criminals, there is a Gamut Charter of Rights, which includes the right to present witnesses in the defense's case. Because it is presented as unusual for an entire session to be held for a bit of underage magic, we can deduce that the number of Gabbit members overseeing each case depends on the severity of the alleged crime. It also seems unusual for the defendant to rely on a spokesperson, as the other trials we observe in the series show just the defendant speaking for him or herself. And there is no reference to wizening lawyers, even on the prosecution side. Rather, it's one of the ministry members who details the charges and pushes for conviction. That absence throws a wrinkle in the law half of the upcoming law and spin spinoff. See it next season on NBC. Or perhaps it just means that we'll learn even more about the way the wizen
1: gamut works. Here's hoping. Jason. Yeah. That golden microphone was my father's. Isaac wasn't quite as devoted to him as to my mother, but I still caught him snogging a pair of my father's old trousers last week. Let's give him something else to focus on. Let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from order chapters six through nine, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first.
0: Number one. From the book, Your Dad's Place, your grandparents were really good about it. James's parents, the Potters. What do we know about the Potters? (laughs) Why aren't they in this story, given that James was only 21 when he died? Well, glad you asked. In a 2005 Leaky Cauldron interview, J.K. said, quote, they were old in wizarding terms and they died. They succumbed to a wizarding illness. That's as far as it goes. There's nothing serious or sinister about those deaths. I just needed them out of the way, so I killed them. Love the honesty. (laughs) It's flat out. Love it. That's what I did. (laughs) And from the Pottermore's post on the Potter family, these names are fucking incredible. Fleamont and Euphemia live long enough to see James marry a muggle-born girl called Lily Evans, but not to meet their grandson, Harry. Dragonpox. Ah, dragonpox. So many have succumbed to dragonpox, by the way. Dragonpox carry them off within days of each other due to their advanced age, and James Potter then inherited Ignotus Peverell's invisibility Mm.
1: cloak. Imagine being named Flemont and Euphemia and then being like, let's name our kid James. Yeah. Number two, quote, Tallest of them all was a noble-looking wizard with his wand pointing straight up in the air. Grouped around him were a beautiful witch, a centaur, a goblin, and a house elf. The last three were all looking adoringly up at the witch and wizard. Ah, the fountain of magical brethren. Introduced to us here, and quite key, as Harry is leaving, quote, he looked up into the handsome wizard's face, but up close, Harry thought he looked rather weak and foolish. Also foolish, the servile nature of three members of the statue, as all three of the groups that surround the witch and wizard here, centaurs, goblins, and house elves, will engage in some form of rebellion over the course of the series. The statue is intended to represent harmony, but really it shows a lie, a lie that many will fight to tear down. Apart from the lie that the statue represents, it comes into play in a quite literal physical fashion at the end of Order of the Phoenix when it is heavily damaged and used in the duel between Dumbledore and Voldemort. Bellatrix blasts the head off the wizard, the body of which Dumbledore turns into a bodyguard for Harry as the witch pins Bellatrix to the floor. The centaur absorbs a killing curse meant for Dumbledore. The goblin and house elf alert ministry personnel to the Serious disturbance occurring, and the wizard's head becomes a portkey that sends Harry back to Hogwarts. Also, of note, hideously after the fall of the Ministry in Hallows, the fountain is replaced with the Magic is Might monument, which depicts a witch and wizard on a throne of muggles. Quite alarming.
0: Number three, on a more cheerful Ministry of Magic note, here's a delightful Easter egg from Rolling. When Mr. Weasley takes Harry into the phone both to enter the Ministry of Magic, we get this line. Let's see. Six. He dialed the number 2, 4, another 4, and another 2 on a keypad. Those numbers spell out magic. Also, hold on a second. Arthur knows numbers? What
1: is <laughs> happening?
0: What exactly is Arthur's issue with muggle money that
1: he can't figure it out? It's a great question. It's a great question. I wish we knew. Number four. We mentioned that Sturgis Podmore was one of the people in the photo of the original order that Moody showed to Harry, and we mentioned that Moody was pissed that Sturgis hadn't returned his invisibility cloak. We also mentioned Harry's concern about Lucius putting the minister under the Imperius curse the day that he was at the ministry. Well, Harry was wrong about that specifically, but his concern was very well-founded— The reason that Sturgis didn't return the Invisibility Cloak to Moody is because, as Hermione will deduce later in order, Lucius put Sturgis Podmore under the Imperius Curse that day at the Ministry, when Sturgis was standing guard by the Department of Mysteries' door under the cloak. Later, Sturgis will be arrested for attempted robbery at the Ministry, attempting to rob the prophecy.
0: Number five, Sirius says of Bellatrix, I haven't seen her since I was your age. The first meeting since that time, by the way, will be quite a meeting.
1: One of them won't leave that meeting, unfortunately. so, So sad already. Number six, speaking of dead people. Ron's dead body is the first that Mrs. Weasley sees when encountering the Boggard, or at least the first that we and Harry observe her seeing. Narratively, this tracks because that night they're celebrating Ron's achievement. But it also works on a meta level because Rowling has said that she considered, at some point midway through the series, Killing off Ron, I'm very grateful that she didn't. Would have
0: been a quite a different series.
1: <laughs> who would Hermione have ended up with? Crumb,
0: Harry? No, come on, stop it. Makes too much sense, does it? I don't know. I guess yeah. Who would it? Who would it have been?
1: Crumb. Yes, Crumb. The Bulgarian bonbon. Yeah. <laughs>
0: like Harry, listen, I like you. You're fine, but Crumb, have you seen his body? It's unbelievable. I like guy. to think that
1: Hermione would have gone on to meet some scholar right. also interested in magical law, fair governance. But also, like, she needs that
0: physical being as well. She does. (laughs) She's. (laughs) (laughs) Number seven. Just interdepartmental memos, Mr. Weasley muttered to him. We used to use owls, but the mess was unbelievable. Droppings all over the
1: desk. Guys, get email. This is one of those moments when you're really like, maybe magic's not great. Yeah, there's certain things that it's like— You just got sh- literal shit all know, over so your office? Sh-
0: also, well, I guess they can make it disappear, but it's also like— <laughs> Just what, like
1: with the human fecal matter. I mean, that's like another
0: thing. It's shit. Like, like, I hate to say it, but, like, that's one of the ways that uh, humans have it over the wizards is plumbing. Had it way earlier. Mm-hmm. Realized, you know, that's a necessity when you can't make your shit disappear. And also, modes of communication that don't defecate on your desk. <laughs> Mal? Witness for the House Cup, Jason Percival Wilfrick Brian, Concepcion. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup too. Albus, the man, the legend,
1: Dumbledore. Albus Percival Wilfrick Brian Dumbledore. I've argued with Cram about this a lot, but I feel compelled to note that Grindelwald in the first Fantastic Beast movie is assuming the persona of Percival Graves and that Percival is part of Dumbledore's name. It's tough. Cram is like, he's a real person, so it's meaningless. And I'm like, JK doesn't do things by mistake. Yeah. Ever. Also, Percival was Albus's father's name. Brian is the real winner there, though. <laughs> also, Brian. I like Brian. that they put
0: that all the way like <laughs> towards the end. Very uncool of Dumbledore not to comfort Harry when he's yes. at Grindelwald Place on the eve of the trial or not even look at him when they're at
1: the trial itself. But, you know, he had his reasons. And there is no denying that Dumbledore is the reason Harry's charges were cleared. Dumbledore absolutely shredded Fudge's paper prosecution, and it's thanks to him. It is thanks to Dumbledore, distant or not, that Harry is going back to Hogwarts, has his wand, has his freedom. Also, this
0: display was a key installment in the growing evidence case of Dumbledore's superiority. We've heard so many tales about his legendary prowess and scenes like the one that unfolded in courtroom 10— Give us and Harry alike a key front row seat for witnessing that prowess at work. Dumbledore went toe-to-toe with the minister, and he won.
1: He sure did. Shouts to you, Albus. Yeah! All right, friends. If Ginny's not lying awake waiting for Hermione to tell her everything about today's binge mode, then we're flabberworms. Thanks, as always, to Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher, who are going straight to bed, no talking! We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing Order Chapters 10 through 14. Until then, remember, if you can get away before seven, Isaac's making meatballs.
0: Oh, 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 oh. oh, my God, it's another boggart. It's got Molly. Quick, it's... Molly! Open up! Molly! Oh, 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 oh. oh, Arthur, you're in there. <laughs> yes, uh, just, uh... Everything's fine, guys. No in here. <clears throat> and if you'll excuse me, I'd like to close the door now and... Get back to it. Okay.